Welcome to the Good Research Podcast, where we talk about those topics that most interest you, helping you make your research study the best it can be. And now, here is your host, Dr. Lauren Seifert. Hello, this is Episode 9 of Good Research, and I'm Dr. Lauren Seifert. Good Research podcasts are for research students as well as researchers who want to brush up on their research techniques and methods. Now, each of us is on a voyage in life, and, and I hope that the Good Research podcasts are moving you forward toward building knowledge and skills in research methods along your journey. This episode is about designing a true experiment. Till now, we've explored some aspects of good research, from philosophical leanings to methodological preferences to qualitative studies and more. We've looked into personal, professional, and research ethics. Furthermore, we have formulated research questions and hypotheses. If you're interested in episode 9, chances are good that you take a traditional conventional approach or orientation to research. And the hallmark of traditional conventional investigations is the true experiment. True experiments typically utilize null hypothesis significance testing, also known as NHST, to find support for or against a prediction. The prediction is known as an hypothesis, and the opposite of the prediction is basically called the null hypothesis. In addition, true experiments usually use random selection from a population in order to sample subjects, and they use random assignment to conditions or groups. As you'll recall, a study begins when the researcher establishes an orientation develops a research question, and builds one or more hypotheses from the research question. The prediction is the hypothesis, and it states what we think will happen in the study, such as that the manipulation of an independent variable will influence a dependent variable. But scientists recognize that no study proves a thing. We always have some doubt even after we've run a good study. For that reason, we develop a null hypothesis from the main hypothesis. The null hypothesis basically says that our prediction will not happen. Then we use various statistical methods to analyze our data. We look to see whether the analyses provide us with a basis for rejecting the null hypothesis. If so, then it doesn't mean that we've proven our hypothesis, but it does mean that our data might support the original hypothesis. From there, we go on to conduct additional studies in order to help identify whether there is additional research support for the hypothesis. This is how theories are developed and refined, through multiple studies that help to identify what parts of an hypothesis or set of hypotheses seem to be supported by data, and what parts are not supported. Good 
research podcast listeners come from different fields. Some are in psychology and the social and behavioral sciences. Others are in marketing and business. Still others uh, are in the natural and health sciences. Now, given the differences, I thought it would uh, it would make sense to take listeners on a, a journey. Um, it actually came from a listener's suggestion uh, where we take an example that everybody can relate to. And so uh, I figured, hey, why not eating? <laughs> we all have to eat, right? So, so let's have some fun with this as a problem area for research. Have you ever been around someone who doesn't like chocolate? I remember the first time I met such a person, I offered him a piece of can a candy bar I was eating, and he said, oh, no thanks, I don't like chocolate. I was baffled. Uh, maybe you're one of those folks. If so, then you might find the example I've put together a bit amusing here. If you're a chocolate lover, as I am, then it will seem only natural to you that I propose a study of food that includes chocolate. Or, well, at least cocoa powder uh, as an ingredient in the food. Of course, chocolate is made from cocoa powder and, and sugar. So, so let's say that we have an investigator who's a nutrition researcher. She refines recipes in order to improve their nutritional values, and she's working with a chef uh, for a chain of restaurants in order to alter recipes so that the company can make uh, certain nutritional claims. The researcher is working with the chef de cuisine, um, that's basically the head chef who works in the kitchens, and the sous chef, uh, that's the deputy chef, or the second in command under the chef de cuisine. And um, they oversee the preparation of cuisine for the chain of restaurants. Um, one of their signature dishes includes mole sauce. Now, mole is one of the most important things in Mexican cooking. It's a savory, sweet, and rich sauce that includes many different ingredients. Tomatoes, pineapples, peppers, chiles, breads, uh, additional fruits, nuts, and spices. Um, some of the spices that are used in, include garlic, chili powder, cinnamon, and even cocoa powder. Our nutrition researcher has heard from the two chefs that they would like to make a claim about antioxidants. Um, but but they do not want to add ingredients. They want to use ingredients that they already have a tendency to, um, to have present in the mole. So they prefer simply to determine whether one version of their mole sauce has more antioxidants than the other. Whereas people think of antioxidants as being very healthful. Um, they help uh, the cardiovascular system. They help with overall health. Um, and so if they can establish that one of the mole sauces has a higher level of antioxidants, then they can make a claim about it. And hopefully this will be a mole sauce that people really like a lot. So the nutrition researcher develops a basic research question. That is, can a version of mole be produced that earns high customer ratings and is naturally high in antioxidants? Fortunately, Mole recipes often include something that is high in phenolic uh, antioxidants, and the ingredient is cocoa. And it's estimated to have more phenolic antioxidants than just about any other food. 
This means that the chefs can experiment with adding more or less cocoa powder or taking it out of the mole, and this will change the overall phenolic antioxidant content of the sauce. As the chefs get to work developing two different mole recipes, the test is, is going to be basically a true experiment. And so the nutrition researcher develops a hypothesis that all other things being equal, people's taste ratings will be higher for the mole with cocoa than for the mole without it. While the statement is the hypothesis, it's null is the not version of the statement. And so thus the null hypothesis is that all other things being equal, people's taste ratings will not be higher for the mole with cocoa than for the mole without it. The chef's work to develop mole with the cocoa powder and the same mole without the cocoa powder is the work that needs to be done so that there can be two conditions or levels of uh, the variable, which is mole. Um, the nutrition researcher will sample 200 people at random from the population. Each person will be assigned at random to a group, either mole with cocoa or mole without cocoa. People in the study will not know what group they're in. Instead, they'll be provided with a basic description of the study. They'll be told that they're being asked to sample some mole sauce and to give their taste rating on a scale from 0 to 100. Zero will indicate that they do not like the mole at all. 100 will indicate that they think the mole is the best thing they've ever tasted. Right? So scale from 0 to 100. Ratings in between will indicate their overall level of affinity for the mole sauce. That is, how much do they like it? After the data are collected, the investigator will be able to use something known as a t-test to evaluate whether the two groups are the same or different with regard to the mean or the average rating for the mole. She can calculate an average rating for mole with cocoa and an average rating for mole without it. Now, if the t-test leads the researcher to find a statistically significant difference between groups, then she'll be able to make a recommendation about which mole the chef should use, the one with cocoa or the one without it. If the t-test is statistically significant, it will indicate which one of the mole sauces has higher ratings overall. And hopefully, it'll be the one with the cocoa in it. I mean, I wish for that because I love cocoa and chocolate. Um, but the chefs will wish for that because they want uh, to make a claim about antioxidants. Now that would be a win-win situation for the chefs. It would allow them to make the antioxidant claim and also uh, give people something they want that tastes good. So the chefs hope that the t-test will indicate a statistical difference between the groups, with the mole with cocoa group having higher ratings than the other group overall. Now, what I've just described to you is a simple, true experiment. It has one independent variable and one dependent variable. The independent variable, or IV, is ma manipulated between groups. So each group gets only one condition uh, or level of the independent variable. Now, if 
type of mole had been manipulated within groups, then all subjects would have tasted both types of mole. Now, that's a different experiment. It's absolutely crucial that an independent variable has at least two levels or conditions. If it doesn't, then there's no basis for comparison, and no claim can be made about the effect of the IV on another variable. In this study, the two levels or conditions of the IV are mole with cocoa and mole without cocoa. Half of all participants are in the mole with cocoa group, and half are in the mole without cocoa group. Now, in order for the researcher to test for an effect of the independent variable, there must be some variable that is measured to evaluate whether there's a difference between the two IV groups. The thing to be measured in this study is each customer's rating of the mole they are given to taste. And the rating is the dependent variable, also known as the DV. Using this DV will allow the researcher to test the effect of the IV manipulation on the DV. Does the type of mole have an effect on people's ratings of the mole's taste? A basic question is whether participants' ratings are affected by whether the mole has cocoa in it or not. The hypothesis indicates that the researcher believes that the cocoa will have an effect and that it will be a positive one. Now recall that the original hypothesis is that all other things being equal, people's taste ratings will be higher for the mole with cocoa than for the mole without it. It's interesting to think about some of the practical issues in running a true experiment. For instance, every subject should be tested in the same way, that is, with the same procedures. The only difference should be that half are eating mole with cocoa and half are eating mole without it. It's very important that the researcher has not varied other things, such as testing some participants in one way and other participants in another way. If she had done this, it would undermine her ability to determine whether any group difference is truly related to the ingredients of the mole. Another intriguing issue is about participants' knowledge. It's important that participants don't know whether they're eating mole with cocoa or without it. This helps to reduce what is known as participant bias. Placebo effects are just one example of a result that can be due to a participant's bias or expectations. If a person really likes chocolate and is told that their mole contains cocoa, it might lead them to a belief that their mole is necessarily excellent, even before they've tasted it. So masking or hiding the conditions of the independent variable from the participants is important. It helps to reduce the chance that results are merely due to participants' expectations or biases. When the study is over, the researcher can tell each subject what type of mole they ate. Ethically, this is an important part of a research study. Debriefing subjects, unmasking their IV condition, and answering their questions about what went on in the study. In regard to the statistic I recommended for analyzing the data in the mole rating study, the t-test can be used because the ratings are made on a numeric scale. It has a true zero point with presumably equal intervals between the numeric val values all the way from zero up to 100. 
and this is known as a ratio scale. If you take a statistics course, you'll hear more about it. Now, when we use a t-test, we look for a large value of t and allows us to reject the null hypothesis in favor of our original hypothesis. However, there are two important errors that can be made when a statistic is interpreted within the context of an experiment like this one. First, it's possible to incorrectly reject one's null hypothesis and conclude that the original hypothesis is supported. And when this happens, it's called a type 1 error. Now, there are any number of reasons that a type 1 error might happen finding a group difference when it really doesn't exist. And one of the keys to avoiding such an error is to conduct multiple studies so that you can converge on reality, even if data from one single study indicates something erroneous. Now, the second type of error in experiments like this one happens when a researcher fails to reject the null hypothesis, believing instead that the original hypothesis isn't supported. And this is called a type 2 error. Again, performing multiple studies and even varying one's methods across research experiments can help to alleviate type 1 and type 2 errors. Furthermore, carefully constructing an experiment with good sampling techniques, random assignment of conditions of the IV, and careful construction of DV measures, or even using a psychometrically validated measure, all of these things can help to reduce those errors. If we go back to the mole situation, ultimately, the researchers helping the chef solve a practical problem. And I hope that hearing about an experiment in practical terms has helped you to better consider and understand just a little bit about how an experiment might work and what are the sorts of things um, that are important when you're running one. I hope also that you have benefited from this episode of Good Research. Keep in mind that good research comes with knowledge, skills, and practice. Take care now, and I'll be with you again in another episode of Good Research. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Good Research. To find more episodes like this, go to www.clovepress.com and click on the resource link. Have a great day.